Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. So let's begin in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and on those in the tombs bestowing life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Christ is risen. Amen. He is risen. And, uh, welcome back to everybody who was here last week. We had a great evening talking about this beautiful document, Lumen Gentium from Vatican II. And tonight and next week, you're in for a treat because now that we've got a lot of the context out of the way, we're going to do a deep dive into the text itself. And believe it or not, in the next maybe 50 or 60 minutes, I'm going to take you through about 39 pages of that document as much as I can. Don't worry about that. We got this. It's a piece of cake. Sort of like just, I'm on the Harley, hop on the back. There's going to be a lot to see. Have your text with you. Have your Bible with you. And just to set the stage, I want to begin with a quote from uh, Henri de Lubac. And he wrote this masterful book, actually 1947, called Catholicism. And he's talking about something that we got into um, last week quite a bit, and that's this tension, this almost paradox between the church as a visible hierarchy and institution and something that you can reach out and touch and that we're a part of on one hand. And on the other hand, this sense that it is invisible, that it's supernatural, that it's beyond our grasp to simply quantify by what we can see and what we can touch. So listen to this. He's going to talk about that paradox. And he says, on the one hand, we see an assembly of sinners, a mixed herd. And he's talking about the church, right? A mixed herd. Wheat gathered with the straw, kind of like Jesus's parable, right? A field with tares growing in it. Corpus Christi mixtum, which, by which he means in Latin, the mixed body of Christ, right? Now, that's something that is going to get all sorted out at the end of time by our Lord Jesus Christ. But it, it really sets the stage for us to realize that we're dealing with a church that is filled with both saints and sinners. So let me go on a little bit further. He says, uh, the church is the ark which shelters clean and unclean animals. You know, we shouldn't be surprised. We, we can be angry when we see sin, but we should not be surprised when we see sinners in the church. Um, on the other hand, we have an unspotted virgin the mother of saints, born on Calvary from the pierced side of Jesus. Uh, we have a church that has fixed laws with well-defined frontiers. But on the other hand, we perceive a very spiritual organization, unseen, listen to this, even by those who are its members, right? Which means even if you're the most, you know, church-going person, Delubach is saying even you, even I, don't fully understand what we're a part of. This side of heaven, we won't. It's a great mystery, and we're always going to be drawn further and further up into it. She is the mysterious structure, which will become fully a reality, listen to this, only at the end of time. 
So it will all get sorted out according to God's justice and holiness, but only ultimately at the end of time. Okay, and that's what we're going to pick up tonight is to talk about this great mystery of those two dimensions uh, that DeLubach talks about. And the first chapter we're going to turn to, and I'm going to ask if we can get um, uh, the document up here for us all to look at a little bit. You're going to both see me tonight and the document, and I'm very happy that you look at the document just as much, even more so than me, because more than looking at me, uh, I want you to really focus on the text. Okay, uh, so to start with, let's read this opening line, which we also had last week, right? From chapter one, the mystery of the church. Christ is the light of humanity, right? Think about John 8, 12. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And it is accordingly the heartfelt desire of this sacred council, being gathered together in the Holy Spirit, that by proclaiming his gospel to every creature, now if you have your a printout of the document, I'm going to be pointing out um, how I would recommend you take some notes. And you want to kind of circle that phrase by proclaiming his gospel to every creature, which is uh, quoting there from Mark 16, 15, basically. Now, why that's important is because if we're going to really understand this ecclesi- ecclesiology in Vatican II, in Lumen Gentium, we have to come face to face with this reality, this mystery in this opening sentence, that the church that, that Jesus is going to proclaim through the church's gospel to every creature, it may bring, that it may bring all men to the light of Christ, which shines out visibly in the church. Okay, we'll come back just for a minute here. I'm going to go back. I'm going to keep you very busy here tonight. <laughs> okay, so, um, so that's the start. Now, what I want to do is, is I want to dive a little bit into the first chapter. And one of the things I want to show you, picking up from this opening line, is how the church reminds us in this opening chapter that we are all adopted sons and daughters, okay? Now, if you think about it, that makes sense, but sometimes we can forget about it, especially if you've been a lifelong Catholic, right? You got baptized as an infant, you've always been a part of the church, but in terms of, of, of your soul, in terms of your parents, in terms of your grandparents, going all the way back to the earliest generations of Christians, right? We've got to realize that in the Old Testament, the people of God, was a designation for, um, for Israel. And what, what Vatican II is getting at here is this new covenant that opened up in Jesus Christ for Jew and Gentile, for slave and free. So let me just show you a couple of the passages here. We'll go back to the document now. Beginning in, uh, on page one, and paragraph two near the bottom of page one, and we read, I guess it's about halfway through that document, all the elect, right? Before time began, The Father foreknew and also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. That's the desire right there of the Father for all of humanity, right? For every creature, as we read in that opening line, that he should also be the firstborn among, and here it is again, many brethren, many brethren. He determined to call together in a holy church those, all those who believe in Christ, okay? Now, let's go on to page two here, paragraph three on page two. Uh, The Son accordingly came, sent by the Father, who before the foundation of the world shows us and predestined us in him for, and here's this phrase you're going to want to highlight, adoptive sonship. Adoptive sonship. 
A few lines down, the origin and growth of the church are symbolized by the blood and water which flowed from the crucified side of our Lord. You see that just a little bit down, and it references John chapter 19. We all know that passage. We just saw it uh, recently during um, Holy Week and Easter. And listen to what Jesus says, which the document quotes, right? And I, this is Christ speaking, right? If I be lifted up from the earth, well, of course, we know he was, right? But he's speaking here before that. If I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself, right? And then the last line of that paragraph, um, all men are called to be, uh, call, sorry, called to this union with Christ. Again, who is the light of the world. There's that phrase, lumen gentium, light to the nations, light to the world. From whom we go forth, through whom we live, and towards whom our entire life is directed. And then the next paragraph, uh, just to show you, um, how much the church is emphasizing this theme of Christ going out to all people, uh, where it says the Spirit, about halfway down, the Spirit dwells in the church and in the hearts of the faithful as in a temple, right? Well, that's language from 1 Corinthians, where we know Paul talks about how we are all members of one body, right? We're all like, you know, to kind of quote the line from, uh, from Pink Floyd, bricks in the wall, right? He's the cornerstone, no doubt about it, right? But we are all uh, cemented into the divine son's own life by virtue of our baptism and growing in sanctification. And so again, it uses that phrase adoptive sonship. There it is for like the umpteenth time, right? In them, he prays and bears witness to their adoptive sonship, talking about the role of the Holy Spirit. I'll come back on the screen here just for a second. Thanks so much. There we go. And so, um, and so what you can see, right, is that from the very beginning of this document, a couple of key themes, right? First of all, because Christ is the light to the nations, it's his desire to fulfill the plan of the Father through the church to spread this message of salvation to all the world. Now, the reason I'm emphasizing this so, so strongly is because a little bit later in this hour, we're going to come to one of the more controversial passages in the document, I think, which trips a lot of people up. And it really is less trippy than it needs to be. I mean, it is complex. And I'm, I'm referring here to this whole notion of how salvation subsists in the Catholic Church, right? What does this say then if you're, if you're outside of the church? And that's why I wanted to really lay this, uh, this, uh, this marker down very early for, for us, that the that documents reminding us from Scripture and from tradition, right? How from the very, from all of eternity, Jesus Christ, the divine Son, was fulfilling the plan of the Father through the Holy Spirit to proclaim this salvation and eternal life to all men. Okay, makes sense? All right, let's get back into the document here. In paragraph six, uh, and this begins on page, well, it begins on page three, but if you um, have the document and we have it come up on the screen, there it is. We'll go on to the next page where it really gets rolling, so top of page seven. And I just want to point out a number of these titles that... Uh, Vatican II incorporates into the document. And I mentioned this last week, that titles uh, may not seem like a very big deal. You say, okay, well, you know, what's the difference? They're just different ways of, of talking about the same thing. Well, that's true in one sense. But in another sense, uh, they're sort of like a rabbit hole, right? In the sense that when you follow a title down to its depths, you begin to learn something much, much deeper about its identity. Take, for example, the whole notion of Christ's titles, right? I mean, we could talk for a whole hour about even any one of those titles, like Son of Man or Son of God, right? 
uh, or king of Israel, and so on and so forth. And the same is true in a different way with the church. And so let's just look at a few of these. The first here is the sheepfold, right? On the top of four, the church is accordingly a sheepfold. And here's again already this notion of the necessity of the church, because it says that sheepfold, the church, is the sole and necessary gateway to which is Christ. I'll come back just for a second on the page to tell you a little anecdote here. So a lot of you know I travel to uh, the Middle East uh, and have been doing so for about the past decade. This last January, I made my, um, I guess it was 13th visit to the Holy Land with our deacons at Mundelein Seminary. And I'll be going back again uh, next Christmas time. But one of the things I did this year that uh, really was so enjoyable and I think thrilling for the seminarians too that I, that I haven't done in the past was to get to, to, to shepherd sheep. Well, only for about half an hour or 45 minutes, but nonetheless, we were given some training from a real shepherd and then they set us out there. And how do you think it went? Horribly, right? <laughs> Horribly, because these people have been doing it their whole life. But with a few tips, we were able to, to kind of see how it works and eventually have a little bit of success. Uh, one of the things that's really interesting is I found out you can't shepherd from, you can't shepherd from behind. Because if you're behind like, like 40 sheep, right? Imagine there you are, right? Out on this plane, there's 40 sheep in front of you. And you, you say, you know, move or something like that to them. Well, they're sort of so dependent upon the voice of the shepherd that they're going to get confused and they'll actually turn around and start running the other way. Why? Because they're responding to the voice of the shepherd. So the way the shepherd leads is to be out in front of them, right? It's the same with our Lord. It's the same with the church. The church is leading us towards salvation. Uh, let's go back to the document here. Uh, and so on, uh, on page four, then, we have some images right from the gospel, right? Uh, in terms of the sheep and the sheepfold. And then um, in the next paragraph, similar but a little bit different metaphor, the church is a cultivated field. All right? Well, what's a cultivated field, right? As opposed to just a field that's in disrepair. Well, it means that uh, the church, and we're talking here about the magisterium, the pope, the bishops, in a particular way, priests, but the leadership of the church, the shepherds, have that responsibility, and I would argue we all do with, with the church, but to cultivate it, right? And thank God that the church has cultivated this field for us. It is filled with good things, right? It is filled with the sacraments and the word of God and architecture and beauty and catechesis and fellowship and serving and so many other things. That's what, the, what it's getting here in terms of talking about a cultivated field. Um, you have that image again uh, in that same uh, paragraph of, uh, I guess the next paragraph there of the cornerstone, right? Often too, it says the church is called the building of God and the house of God. And then at the very end of that paragraph, um, you could see it quotes Revelation 21, where it says, um, as living stones we here on earth are built into the church. Uh, it is this holy city that is seen by St. John as it comes down out of heaven from God when the world is made anew, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And then you see um, another central theme right below it is this motif of the church's mother. And this is very, very important for us to, to recognize. And it's also important, I think, to remember to pray, right? To pray that we would be more attuned to the voice of our mother, the church, and that along with that, we would be as close as possible to the Virgin Mary. Now, 
one of the things the document's going to do as it goes on is make this connection between the church as mother and Mary as our mother. Speaking of prayer, one of the things I think we need to pray for is for our fellow believers in particular um, that, that know Jesus Christ but are only connected to the church and then to the mother in a kind of imperfect way, right? I'm thinking particularly about, well, I was thinking about Protestants, but certainly, you know, Orthodox, they're sort of in many ways closer because of the sacraments and, and other things, um, holy orders. But I'm thinking especially about um, our Protestant brothers and sisters. You know, we have something like 40,000 and growing denominations of, of Christians. And this is something that we, we can probably, you know, all pray about because we probably all know people who are in various communities. They're people we love. Some of them are family members. They might even be a husband or a wife. Uh, hopefully we have some joining us tonight and we're glad you're here. But, you know, one of the things that we want to pray for is not simply that they, they become members of the church, right? We don't want to pray in a way that uh, has or at least we don't want to pray in, in this, for that in the sense of hubris, like, well, I'm Catholic and I want them to be Catholic because I'm cool. And what we want to pray for is that they would participate in that cultivated field even more deeply. Now, that's not suggesting that they're not already members and children of God. They're adopted as well by virtue of their baptism, right? But there still is that sense of, an, of the imperfect union. And one of the things that we need to pray more for, especially to uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary, is that Mary would draw many to the church. As we know, for, for many, unfortunately, the Blessed Virgin Mary is, uh, remains an obstacle. And it's kind of a paradox, right? Because when people come into the church and fall in love with the church, most often they cultivate a relationship with the Blessed Virgin Mary. But outside the church, it's strange because she becomes sort of almost this obstacle for people. I know that was the case for me when I was, unfortunately, a wayward Catholic for about eight years of my life. Some of you know I, I was raised Catholic, but then for about eight years left the church and loved Christ, but in evangelical circles. And, you know, Mary was just not a part of my interior spirituality. And I thank God every day and coming back into the church that I've, um, by the grace of God, been able to cultivate uh, a relationship with our mother, Mary. But that's something we need to pray about. And we'll talk more about, we'll talk more about Mary as we go on, especially next week, because there is an entire um, chapter given over to the Blessed Virgin Mary uh, that we'll deal with next week. Okay, let's go back to the document, page six now. Now, holding together all of these, all of these things, all of this imagery, right, whatever title that we're talking about, is Jesus Christ, right? Where it says at the top of the page, the head of this body is Christ. We just talked about the bridegroom image, right? He is the image of the invisible God, and in him all things came into being. Now, it's quoting here uh, from Paul's letter to the Colossians. It's very interesting in Greek, the word that Paul uses uh, that is translated into English as, as image is the word acon, spelled E-I-K-O-N. It's actually where we, where we get our word icon. Uh, and so that's, that's what Paul is saying Jesus Christ is, right? He's the icon of the invisible God. The word made flesh, right? And in him all things came into being. He is before all creatures, meaning ahead of and supreme, right? And in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, which is the church. Now, glance down to the next paragraph, and it shifts over to the church now, right? That's who Christ is. Now, what about the church? And it says in that um, 
paragraph halfway through it, on earth, still as pilgrims, right? Picking up that theme from the very beginning, right? That it's not until we get until the very end of time when all of this is going to be sorted out. So on earth, still as pilgrims in a strange land, following in trial and in oppression. And boy, are we seeing that more than ever today in the church, right? Thinking about what's happening around the world with the near genocidal levels of, of martyrdom and persecution in places like Sri Lanka and, and so many other places, right? On earth, still as pilgrims in a strange land, following in trial and in oppression, the paths he trod, we are associated with his sufferings as the body with its head suffering with him. There is another thing to highlight, my friends, is that phrase suffering with him, right? When we suffer, it's something you know, but as a brother in Christ, I just want to remind you of it. When we suffer, and we all do in various ways, you have not met a person that has not gone through suffering. There are many people that we meet every day that will put on a smile and a happy face, but inside are bearing untold crosses of many different kinds, right? But the good news of Jesus Christ is not that we won't suffer, but that we suffer with him. Let's go back and look at that text. He's already trod this path. In other words, he's gone before it all the way to Calvary, right? And he has shown us the way that leads to glory, which is through the cross and through the grave, right? He has conquered death. And Therefore, we never suffer alone as members of the body of Christ. We are joined to Christ, and he is joined to us. We're taken up into the mysteries of his life uh, that we may be glorified. They're drawing on uh, the book of Romans. Okay, next page. Well, doing okay? Told you we're going to cover a lot of ground tonight. Okay, now let's talk a bit more about this, uh, this mystery of the church as both invisible and visible. So I want to read uh, a bit, so stay with me here. This is a really interesting and significant paragraph in chapter 1. The one mediator Christ established and ever sustains here on earth his holy church, the community of faith, hope, and charity, so there's the three theological virtues, as a visible organization through which he communicates truth and grace to, there it is, all men, right? But the society structured with hierarchical organs and the mystical body of Christ, the visible society, and the spiritual community, the earthly church, and the church endowed with heavenly riches, are not, repeat, something to be highlighted here, not to be thought of as two realities. Folks, underline that, right? We don't have two churches. We don't have the invisible church that's uh, the church of heaven and this mysterious one that uh, were, is being described here last week in this, and then the one that we see with all of its you know, uh, with all with all of its struggles, right? Uh, with with the co with the coffee pot that doesn't work in the church parish center, and uh, you know that that priest you may know that's gifted many ways, but is overworked, and therefore maybe he's a little cranky, and and all the different things. And then we could point it inwardly too, and say we have these we have these imperfections as well, right? But the point is to see here we don't have this we don't have a dualism we don't have two churches. That's what Vatican II is stressing here, is it is one reality. In fact, let, look at this next sentence. On the contrary, they form one complex reality, another thing for us to write down. And folks, I'm stressing these things to us tonight 
some of these particular lines, because these are some of the fault lines that I think people get tripped up about, right? So, well, the church is holy, and therefore it should be perfect. So why do we have these these sins in the church. And on the other hand, people may say, well, yeah, the church is perfect, but are we doing enough to reach out to sinners? And are they welcome in the church today? And this is what Lumen Gentium is getting at, is that it forms one, and it's very complex, right? It's so complex, as I said earlier, we can't even fully understand it. Now, the last part of this paragraph, just to summarize, it makes a, what you might call Christological analogy. What do I mean by a Christological analogy? Well, let me tell you the Christological analogy of Scripture, and I use this in my own seminary classes, right? We know that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. Yes? Okay. Now, if we take that Christological truth of Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man, and we try to understand Scripture through that Christological lens— how does that apply? Well, it's something like this, right? The Word of God, right, the written Word, is like the living Word in the sense that just as Jesus Christ is the divine Son, the Scripture, the written Word, is God's divine Word, right? The Holy Spirit is the ultimate author. Now, Christ has a human nature. What about Scripture? Well, Scripture doesn't have a human nature. It's not a person, but it does have human authors. Yes, do you see? And so there's that, that analogy with regard to Jesus Christ and the Word of God. Now, what does that mean for the Word of God? Well, it certainly means that the Word of God belongs to God himself. It is uttered from the Holy Spirit. At the same time, it means Scripture is not only a divine word, right? I stress this all the time to my seminarians who I think sometimes want to almost over-accentuate the fact that God's Word is a divine word. And it's not that we want to conceal that. We want to celebrate that, but we want to lift up this human dimension next to it. Okay, now what does that mean that there's a divine element of Scripture and a human element working together? Well, it means that God guides, and he chooses, elects, guides the human authors so that they convey everything he wanted to convey, but in a human form, without error, and fully and faithfully, truthfully, right, inspired, but in a human way. Now, in another document in Vatican II called uh, Dei Verbum, which talks about Scripture more, one of the things it says is, okay, well, because of that twofold mystery of the Word of God, the divine and the human, it means we have to pay attention to both. We have got to listen to God speaking to us in the Scripture. We also have to do as much as we can do to understand who those human authors are, what they were saying in their original context to the original audiences. Well, why do we have to do that? Because if we neglect those things, we're in some sense neglecting that human dimension of God's Word. And we risk making it simply, uh, you know, a spiritual pie-in-the-sky Word. And the more we come into, come to grips with this understanding of both the divine and the human, we'll see this integrity of the Word of God. Okay, so now, that hopefully is a good reminder of how Scripture works. Well, what about the church? Let's go back to the document. On page 7, following a very similar this Christological analogy of Jesus Christ himself, it says here uh, in, let's say it's paragraph eight, for this reason, the church is compared in a powerful analogy to the mystery of the incarnate word. As the assumed nature inseparably united to him serves the divine word as a living organ of salvation, so in a somewhat similar way, does the social structure of the church serve the Spirit of Christ who, vivify, who vivifies it in the building up of the body. So to come back for a minute 
What all that means to put it together is that when we are involved in the church, whether we're in the liturgy, whether we're at the March for Life, whether we're the domestic church in our homes, right? We're participating in a human sense with that larger divine reality that is guiding and shaping and leading us towards our heavenly home. So the two things are, are working together. But we've got to remember that with the word of God, we're talking about human authors and the divine author. But with the Christological analogy applied to the church, we're talking about the invisible reality of the church. And we're talking about this human dimension, which contains all the good things that God calls us to do, to be holy, but also those human elements that sadly, at times, can drag us down. And the church wants us to understand that while that will get all burnt off, right, in the eschaton when Christ comes, we are left to struggle against sin and by, with Christ's grace, overcome it, but knowing at the same time in humility that we ourselves are sinners in need of grace, and so is everyone, so is everyone around us sinners, even the Pope himself, right? And that doesn't mean we excuse it. That doesn't mean we overlook things. Not at all. Let me don't, let's not be, uh, miss this point here. What it means is that we need to be humble in praying for God's grace and, and through the sacraments and through the Word of God to, with His grace, overcome those sins and ask for God's healing so that we grow more and more in Christ's likeness. It doesn't mean we have this least con common denominator view of that the church should be holy. Not at all. We're aspiring for perfection, right? Jesus Christ said, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. But it means, you know, like when we go to the doctor, you want to get a real assessment. You don't want to hear about the person you hope to be. You, all, you need to hear about who you are now, right? You need to know the truth of what's going on. So the church in this document is giving us a very tr um, clear diagnosis, both the good and the bad of our situation. All right, um, let's go on to the next chapter, shall we? We want to look at a few of the other chapters here. The next chapter begins on page eight, is focused on uh, this uh, phrase, the people of God. And the big idea here, essentially, is that we as the church are, in a sense, standing upon the shoulders of what we might call the original biblical people of God. And I'm talking about, talking about Israel here, right? So it's going to make some connections between Scripture, particularly the Old Testament, and that image of the people of God in the original Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants on one hand, and the church today. So what can we learn from this? Well, let's look at a few lines here. So in this paragraph, around four lines down, it says, uh, God therefore chose the Israelite race to be his own people and established a covenant with it. He, watch this, gradually instructed this people. And if you know anything about the story of salvation history in the Old Testament, it's a very gradual story, right? Gradual in the sense that there's, you know, it's like sort of like one step forward, two steps back. One step forward, two steps back. You know, yeah, yeah, get to the get to Mount Sinai and then ah, golden calf, two steps back, right? I get to Jerusalem, yay, and then temples destroyed, two steps back because of sin, right? But what this tells us by studying the scripture and studying the Old Testament, is we begin to learn from the experience of Israel. So I'm not sure how much time you spend in your, in your spiritual life uh, studying you know, the Old Testament,
But for me, it's as important, and listen to me carefully, in some ways, more, in some ways, more than even studying the New Testament. Now, that may sound shocking, but the reason I say that is because in the Old Testament, what we're beginning to see in many ways is how, through this image of Israel, the church will gradually be brought towards its perfection. It doesn't reach it in the Old Testament, right? But what we, what we have for us is an encouragement through the books of the Old Testament to continue on our pathway with all of its ups and all of its downs, to keep going. Now, we get that in the New Testament, too, in the Gospels and particularly in the book of Acts. But why I look like looking at the Old Testament is because it all leads up to Christ. And that's where it all begins, right? Let's go back to the document here. And it says near the bottom of page eight, all of these things, all of these things uh, happened as a preparation and figure of that new and perfect covenant, which is to be ratified in Christ. You're talking about Jesus Christ and the gospel in the New Testament. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will put my law within them and I will write it upon their hearts. This is, of course, this great uh, passage from Jeremiah 31 called the Book of Consolation in the prophet Jeremiah, where it looks forward to the time of the coming of Christ. And notice what it says here, what Lumen Gentium says, building on this, on this Old Testament imagery, right? It says, Christ instituted this new covenant, namely the covenant in his blood, the Holy Eucharist, right? He called a race made up of Jews and Gentiles, which would be what? One, not according to the flesh, but in the spirit. And this race would be the new people of God. So we'll come back for a second. So the idea here is that by focusing us on the old, by focusing us on the Old Testament, the church is reminding us of where the whole notion of the people of God began. And that's all the way back in the garden, but then particularly with, with Abraham. And so to go back and to read the Old Testament is to understand more of our own vocation as part of the church, because we see it prefigured through the book of Genesis and Exodus, all the way through the prophets, the Psalms, all the way leading up to the New Testament. And we folks, uh, speaking to you all, the Institute, have a, a, a great opportunity to do so because throughout this whole program, as you know, there's so many opportunities among other themes to study the scriptures, right? So take advantage of all of those. And in your own parish, I encourage you to, to band together with others. You know, if there's not a, a scripture study group, why not start one? And you say, well, I'm not really prepared to do so. Why not at least talk to that person you know who might be good at it and say, hey, you know, you take care of, you take care of the, uh, the, you know, the lesson and, and work with father and that. And I'll, you know, I'll tell you, I'll bring the tang and I'll bring the, I'll bring the, the donuts or, you know, whatever coffee and stuff. And we'll figure this out together. But we need to get back to the basics of reading scripture and praying the scriptures together. Okay. Now I want to move on to page 10, moving along here. And we're still in the second chapter, but in this particular, on this particular section here, it's going to get into the whole notion of the priesthood. Now, this is something that often blows people away, and we don't have too much time to spend on this paragraph, but I want to at least point it out to you, because one of the things that trips people up is it talks about priesthood in different ways, right? So it says, uh, though they differ essentially and not in degree, the common priesthood of the faithful, that is by virtue of our baptism into Jesus Christ, right? 
and the ministerial or hierarchical priesthood are nonetheless ordered to one another. They're in a sense sort of made for one another, if you will. Each shares in its own proper way in the one priesthood of Jesus Christ. Okay, so let's do the math. We've got the one priesthood of Jesus Christ, the great and eternal high priest, but then Lumen Gentium saying, well, we have this uh, ministerial priesthood, which is going to go on and talk about, you know, the Pope and the bishops and priests. It's also going to talk about deacons and later religious, but so there's the, that ministerial priesthood. But Lumen Gentium is reminding us that we all have a role in this common priesthood. Now, one of the ways I think you can put these two things together, and I'll let you read the paragraph, but I want to summarize it for the sake of time, is this. I think the way it brings these two priesthoods together, these two dimensions of priesthood, I should say, is like this. The ministerial priesthood ministers in a giving way, and the common priesthood ministers in a receiving way. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is that we need the hierarchical or ministerial priesthood, our priests, right, are ordained, to minister the sacraments and proclaim the word of God to us. So they do so in a giving way, okay? We, as the common priesthood, as the people of God, our job, in a priestly sense, is to receive that gift. Now, once we receive it, we're called to give it away. So I'm not saying, hey, it's, it's about all being takers. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying in this kind of ebb and flow between the ministerial or hierarchical priesthood and this common priesthood, that's a very helpful way to think about it in the way that Lumen Gentium gets it across, that primarily the hierarchical priesthood uh, ministers in a giving way. And think about it, right? If they're an altar Christus, Christ laid down his life. They're called to do the same, right? They're called to give up themselves to celibacy and to holy orders. So they minister in a giving way, primarily, and we minister in a receiving way. It means we must participate and receive those gifts of the ministerial priesthood. Does that make sense? I think it's a very nice, simple way to explain it to, to ourselves and also to others. Let's go on a little bit. We're going to skip over just a couple of paragraphs here. Let's go up to chapter three, and that begins on page 17. I'm not going to lie to you. Chapter three is long. It's uh, page 17 to 32. So it's like 14 pages there. Why? Well, because this is the section where Lumen Gentium gets into this uh, visible hierarchical dimension of the church. You could say that there are sort of four main themes here. I'll come back to this for a second. And, but hold the place there if you're, uh, you know, have the document at home, because we're going to go right back there in a second. There are sort of four main themes that are dealt with in this 15-page uh, chapter. First, the bishops. Wait a minute, what about, what about the Pope? Well, we'll come to that. This document, as I said last week, is, is somewhat unique from other documents that describe the church in that it does not put the primary emphasis on the papacy. Notice I didn't say it doesn't discuss the papacy. Of course it does. That'll be my second point here, papal infallibility. But you could say that the primary emphasis is not as much on the particular bishop of Rome as it is on the collegiality of the bishops. That's kind of a signature thing to know about Lumen Gentium. You should, you should write that down, and we'll try to understand why that is. Now, why does Vatican II do this? Well, there's a few reasons. One of them has to do that we, we certainly have documents prior to this one, 
for example, in, in Vatican I, and even going back to earlier councils, that really talk about the particular charisms of the Pope. So in other words, we already have documents that deal with that. This one's going to kind of kind of bring him to the background and move the bishops to the foreground. And, and it's all kind of presented in this notion of collegiality, which means it's talking about um, the bishops as a community after the community of the apostles. And I think what the church want, is really getting at here with the bishops is, look, they're the successors to the apostles. So it's not that Lumen Gentium wants to move away from this notion of the single bishop of Rome. It's all in here. But it wants to highlight something that maybe, at least at the time of Vatican II, needed to be rekindled. And that's this notion of the apostolic college that begins with Peter and all the 12 together in unity, right? If this is a document, it's all about unity, right? Jews and Gentiles, Catholics, and in some sense, non-Catholics are part of the larger body of Christ. And it's all about unity of God's people, right? And therefore, highlighting the role of the bishops and their primal unity with the Bishop of Rome is one of the keystones of this document. Okay, so number one in this chapter, I'm giving you the highlights, is the collegiality of the bishops. Number two, papal infallibility. It does talk about the Pope, but in particular talks about both the characteristics and what you might call the limits of papal infallibility. And I think some of that is to help both Catholics as well as in an ecumenical sense, non-Catholics understand, well, what are the limits of this? How does it work? A third theme in this, in this chapter is local ministry. So here it, it does talk about the priests, although bishops have more kind of ink. Uh, it does talk about how they're joined to and united with uh, the bishops, how uh, the priests really uh, embody the role of the bishop on a local level in parishes and in local communities, and how therefore they, they demand the respect and love of God's people. So that would be number three. Number four is deacons. In paragraph 29 of this chapter and 30, we just get two paragraphs, but boy, they are breaking news in terms of this document because they, they really reconstitute this biblical notion of the diaconate that goes all the way back to the book of Acts and uh, is embedded in Acts chapter six, where we see coming alongside the, the apostles, these chosen men, the diakonia for the ministry of service. And so we get sort of a reconstitution, a proliferation of, of ministers through this diakon. And Vatican II is, in a sense, reconstituting that in the modern world. And one of the reasons it says it's necessary to have deacons today, this may strike you, is not because we need more people to wash hands and feed and, and, and do all kinds of service stuff, although that certainly is part and parcel of the diaconate, this ministry to service. But what it actually emphasizes is preaching. You think about it, right? That's, that's really fundamentally where we see our deacons is in the liturgy. And so what, what Vatican II really taught with this whole reconstitution of the diaconate was that the word of God is preeminent, but in some ways can get sort of sidelined or forgotten about, sadly, uh, and that the sacramental life kind of takes the lead role. And that's true, right, for many Catholics, is we go to church, we receive Holy Communion, we go to confession, and you think about all the other sacraments, but particularly those of, of, um, of baptism as well as of Eucharist and confession, is how, of, of how we're Catholic. And what Vatican II is saying in many ways in raising up this, 
this, um, this ministry of the diaconate again, is to say that the kerygma matters, that the proclaiming of the word of God matters. In fact, it will go on to say that we can fall into kind of a lethargic sense of the sacraments where they become sort of like magic. The same can happen in devotional life. John Paul II talked about this in his encyclical on the rosary. You know what he said? He said, if you pray the rosary all the time, which is beautiful, and he prayed it daily, one of the dangers is that unless you're contemplating in a living sense the living Christ, right, that you have in your, in your head this image of, of what Christ is doing, right? Whether it's in the wedding feast at Cana or, you know, in the way of the cross, the scourging, whatever it is, that in, unless you focus on Christ, this is what John Paul II said, the rosary is sort of like a body without a soul. And I would argue that something similar is going on here in Lumen Gentium, that is it's saying, look, we need both the word of God and the sacraments for the body and soul to be joined together. It's not enough just to have the word of God, that's often what we have in many of the our non-Catholic communities, right? There's there's some sense of the sacraments, maybe baptism alone, uh, or baptism and, and communion, but it's the preeminence of the Word of God. So that's brought forward, right? But sadly, for many Catholics, it's the Word of God that's attributed and put in the background, and we say sacrament, 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 right? And so by bringing the diaconate forward. One of the things that the church is trying to highlight is the, is the proliferation of the Word of God, to bring that back into the forefront again, not over the sacraments, but along with them, so that it's this kind of this two-cylinder engine chugging along, you know, or the two wings of the bird, you might say. And that's the, one of the ways that it really, I think, beautifully uh, talks about the deck. And of course, it also talks about service and bringing Christ to the poor and all the beautiful ways that, that our deacons serve in so many invisible ways beyond the altar. Um, so that's the, um, let's see, we have number one, the bishops, two, papal infallibility, three, the uh, local um, aspect of the church, that would be, you know, the priests and also the local parish ministry. Number four, the deacons. Now, notice that I left the laity out of that. And the reason for that is they're not covered in this chapter. And people are saying, oh boy, see, they don't care about us, right? No, 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 no. The church cares so much that the laity get, in fact, their own particular chapter. That's the next chapter after this one, chapter four is on the laity itself. Okay, so let me just say a few words about that. If you flip over to, let's see, page 33, um, you can see there that uh, is where it begins, and it goes for about, about six pages. Okay, now we're not gonna get to it tonight, I just wanna point out that it's there, we'll, we'll deal with it a bit more next time. But let's deal with a couple of these, just before we close out here, a couple of the uh, elements that are in uh, chapter three on the hierarchy. I talked a lot about the bishops, and so you can read through some of what it says about them. I'll just in passing mention that one of the things it stresses is that their primary role is in proclaiming the word of God as preachers and as teachers. And, um, and this is something we need to pray for because there's many very, very good bishops out there. I've had a chance to meet many of them in my roles as a seminary uh, formator, but unfortunately, they have so many administrative duties um, that it's it, it sometimes is challenging for them to 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 find that that balance and to find that uh, that and to make that the the central reality of what they do. So we need to be praying for our bishops in that respect. But let's look at the paragraphs here where it gets into this kind of sort of controversial dimension, as it were, of uh, the the faith subsisting in um, in the church alone. So let me turn there. 
Well, while we're at it here, um, let me, I'll skip around a little bit. Let's go to, let's go to paragraph 29 first on page 31. Here is where we have this whole aspect of the diaconate. And it says, at a lower level of the hierarchy, after it deals with bishops and then priests, are to be found deacons who receive the imposition of hands, not onto the priesthood, but onto the ministry. Onto the ministry. For strengthened by sacramental grace, they're dedicated to the people of God in conjunction with the bishop uh, and his body of priests. And here comes some of their duties, right? In the service of liturgy, of the gospel, and of works of charity. So it's kind of, in a sense, really three. In service of the liturgy, serving at the altar, of the gospel, that would mean, as I just mentioned, the proclaiming the gospel, preaching, and of works of charity. It pertains to the office of a deacon insofar as it may be assigned to him by the competent authority to administer baptism solemnly, to be custodian and distributor of the Eucharist in the name of the church and to assist at and to bless marriages, to bring viaticum, um, to the dying, right? And to read scripture, to read scripture to the faithful and to instruct and exhort the people. Let's look at paragraph um, on page 24. This is also in uh, just up a few more. I, I mentioned this briefly here, but it's worth kind of, I think, highlighting. Among the more important duty of bishops is that of preaching the gospel as pride of placed. Uh, they are authentic teachers. This is a good paragraph to highlight or underscore. If you want to wonder what the church says about the role of bishops and the centrality of preaching and teaching and being the clear guides in terms of what we believe as Catholics, right, and in terms of proclaiming the truths of the gospel and of the whole faith, here it is. That is, teachers endowed with the authority of Christ. Teachers endowed with the authority of Christ who preach the faith to the people assigned in them. Now, in most cases, that's going to be uh, through their diocesan ministry and certain exceptions. It could be in other dimensions or capacities, but for most, that's going to be in the diocesan aspect. The faith which is destined to inform their thinking and direct their conduct. Wow, what a great summary of how our faith is to incorporate and embody our entire life. The faith which is destined to inform their thinking that is our mind, right, and direct their conduct. Under the light of the Holy Spirit, they make their faith shine forth, drawing from the storehouse of revelation new things and old. It's drawing on Matthew 13 there. They make it bear, they make it bear fruit, and their watchfulness, and sorry, with their watchfulness, they ward off whatever errors threaten their flock. They indeed are our shepherds. Now, just a little bit here about ex cathedra and um, how that works with bishops. So let's just get this in here quickly. Still on the same page, uh, 25, paragraph 25, it says, bishops who teach in communion with the Roman pontiff are to be revered as witnesses of divine and Catholic truth. The faithful for their part are obliged to submit to their bishop's decision made in the name of Christ in matters of faith and morals, and to adhere to it with a ready and respectful allegiance of mind. That's a really good reminder that those last adjectives, 
because I think sometimes people get frustrated with, with bishops, and in one sense, that can be a human response. You know, we, we want, we, we, we're striving, we're desiring that the church, you know, clean up, whether it's the abuse crisis or other things that might be going on that have nothing to do with that, but other issues, could be a financial situation, could just be other things going on in the diocese, and we can get impatient, right? It's human nature. We can get impatient. Um, but at the same time, we must remind ourselves that as our shepherds, they deserve and demand our ready and respectful allegiance. This loyal submission of the will and intellect must be given in a special way to the authentic teaching authority of the Roman pontiff. Now watch this. Even when he does not speak ex cathedra, that is in terms of uh, an infallible bull, something that is uh, proclaimed uh, infallibly, right? In other words, we must, the Bishop of Rome and all the bishops need to have our respect and our love. Now, I'll come back on the um, screen for a minute as we begin to close out here. And I saw this beautifully when just this last weekend, I was at the Holy Name Cathedral in Chicago, where we had a number of men being ordained to the uh, transitional diaconate, which is to say, that uh, they will serve as deacons for this next year, and then, Lord willing, they'll go on to become uh, priests of Jesus Christ for the Roman Catholic Church. So they're a year away, essentially, from priesthood. But yet they, um, through the laying on of hands, became deacons, transitional deacons. And as they went up to the bishop, right, he would say to them, and I'm paraphrasing, do you promise to me your respect and obedience? And then, you know, you, you couldn't hear them, but they would say, I do, or I will. And then he, you know, he, he blesses them. And it's this very beautiful fatherly dimension of, of Christ and his disciples. That's really what we're looking at in the, in the icon, the image of the bishop and the priest is sort of akin to Christ and his apostles, right? There's a sense in which they're joined to the bishop. The priests are joined to the bishop. As are, as are the deacons, right? In self-sacrifice. So just as Christ, who gave up his whole life for us and gave up his life for the church, did so, he also called his apostles to be self-sacrificial. This is the life and the vocation of the calling of the ministerial priesthood. Now, there are times in our world where we see that breaking down and failing because of the sin that's in the church. But as we round out this evening, let's pray for the Holy Father. Let's pray for the bishops that are joined to him. Let's pray for holy priests and certainly for seminarians that are on the way towards ordination. And we haven't yet talked about them uh, tonight, but we'll do so next week about the laity and about religious. We need to pray for all these various vocations in the church and that we would join together in a more perfect integrated unity as the body of Christ. We're in need of it today. And the more that we reclaim that, the more that the light of Christ is going to shine out from the church. Some people say, what can we do about this or that in the church? Begin praying and living out your vocation. I'm going to turn it back over to Father Hezekiah. We do have questions coming in, uh, Dr. Smith, and uh, uh, just all very uh, different types of questions. So we do have a um, 
someone asking uh, regarding the Christological analogy of paragraph eight. You touched upon this, but I think maybe this person is asking for a little bit more. Is it correct to say that the church is both human and divine? And, and they're thinking in, in the terms of Christ, how he assumed our human nature in relationship to his divine nature. Okay, so to properly answer, let's, if I can ask Angela, just let's go back and look at the text itself here, right? So it's page seven, and it's in paragraph eight. And sort of the, the key sentence here is structured society with hierarchical organs and the mystical body of Christ. Notice how they're sort of compounded together there, right? And that's, that's where I'm going with this answer. The visible society and the spiritual community, the earthly church and the church endowed with heavenly, heavenly witnesses, are not to be thought of as two, real, two realities. On the contrary, they form one complex reality which comes together from a divine and a human element. So just come back on the page here. I mean, this is where I think in some sense, analogies are helpful, but they can they serve a purpose for, for a point, right? There's one Lord Jesus Christ, right? And he has a human and divine natures, one person, two natures. And that's where the analogy, I think, it's imperfect, but it works to a point. What, we're, what the church is trying to is get at is that there's these two dimensions of it. And so I, I don't think it's helpful uh, or, or right to, to start thinking of it as, as two entities, if that helps at all. In the same way with the Word of God, right? It's not like we have, think of it this way, like when we're, we're trying to understand what God's Word says, it's not like you can separate the voice of the Holy Spirit from, let's say, Jeremiah, right? It's like, how do you do that, right? Because as you read Jeremiah, you're hearing both the prophet Jeremiah, but you're also hearing simultaneously, sort of like in stereo, the Holy Spirit speaking the same exact syllables, the same exact words. They're co-joined together. You can't really pry them apart. And I think the church here is, is, is wise in not having us push these two things so far apart. In fact, to the opposite, it's saying we don't want to do that, right? We don't want to, if we risk doing that, then it's sort of like there's certain elements of the church that are, you know, not sanctified or, or unredeemed or beyond redemption. They're the parts that are, um, you know, going to go on the, on the scrap heap. And that's not the vision of the church, right? Christ is has died on the cross so that every member of the church, even the most, you know, flagrant sinner who's still called by the name of Christ, would be brought to perfection through the ministry of the church. So, but that can only happen through that divine dimension of the church by which God pours out the grace of the sacraments, right? So it, it's, it's, it's kind of complicated, but I think we want to keep these two things as closely together, united in our, in our, in our, in our minds, and not begin to think of them as, as in any kind of sense of a dichotomy. Would you agree with that, uh, Father? Oh, absolutely, Dr. Smith. I was just thinking of a, of a quotation I came across a few months ago. I don't have it in front of me, but uh, an a Eastern Orthodox saint who was this beautiful thing, he says, he goes so far as to say, the church is eternal. And what he, what he says about this, he says, he says that the Trinity constitute the eternal church. This is the eternal community, which then manifests itself and pours itself out, uh, forming us in his image and likeness. And therefore, there is this kind of interesting dimension, as you're saying this, these two aspects of the divine, the divine life, which then is poured out and shared with us. 
and and our humanity becomes we become as 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 we hear in the scriptures partakers of the divine nature let me yes yes uh from first peter let me just add one quick anecdote which i hope will help folks um so a number of years ago i talked with a friend of mine who for the first time went to rome and i couldn't wait for him to get back he's a non-catholic but basically friendly towards Catholicism. And so I wanted to hear, you know, like what happened and did you see, did you see the Pope? No. And you know, so, so anyways, after the trip, he was showing me the pictures and talking about it. And he said, Oh, you know, the Vatican trip was amazing. And, and um, it was, it was beautiful. He said, but I didn't have to go very, very far away from St. Peter's square, really still in Vatican city, where I could still see the Vatican right there. And, you know, I'd see uh, people that, presumably are in some way connected to the church that are, you know, like one guy laying on a park bench and looking like he was drunk and it really, really bothered him. And, you know, I said, I understood, you know, how that is. We don't know who that person is, what their situation is, but even if that person was a Christian, even if it was a priest, let's say, heaven forbid, right? I said, I think the reason that image bothers us is partly because on a more subconscious level, we're aware of how that dynamic lives in us, right? So when we see those things, one of the reasons I think it, but this is just my own theory, why it bothers us when we see sin in the church is because it reminds us, there but for the grace of God go I, right? There are that, those dimensions in us. There's the beautiful cathedral living inside of us. And then, then sometimes, hopefully not this falling down drunk, but there's those dimensions that fall short of it, right? And I think some of, some of us, by virtue of our baptism, are, um, are, are struggling with those things from time to time quite a bit. And we don't like when we see it in the world, but I think part of the reason for that is because it, it, it makes us fearful that, that we're in that same situation. But thanks be to God, our Lord Jesus Christ knows that, right? He knows there's those two dimensions. He knew it in St. Peter. He knew it in St. Peter when Peter denied him three times, and yet right after the resurrection, Jesus goes to the shore, and Peter dives out of the boat, right? And then he asks him that question, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Right? And he commissions Peter to strengthen his brothers. But it was just a short while before when Peter screamed, I don't know the man. So we can take, I think, comfort from St. Peter himself that our Lord knows the challenges that we face as sinners, and yet he still says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, and I will help you do so by the grace poured out in the sacraments and in the church. We need the church. There's no other way to salvation. We need the church to be joined to Jesus Christ. So there's another question coming here from Teresa Cotter, which I think is excellent, and says, what does it mean in paragraph eight that the church subsists in the Catholic church? Okay. I'm going to do a teaser. Now, I didn't. I mentioned that briefly, and I didn't. I didn't deal with it tonight because I didn't want to rush over it. So let's deal with that one next week. I want to start with that one. Uh, it's a little teaser to come back for next week because there's there's a lot there, and I don't want to. Um, I don't want to short circus it. So I'm gonna. I'm gonna ask that we deal with that next week. It's 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 one of the questions that I think, you know, after Vatican II, it generated a lot of light and heat, and even some you know, even some anger for not from non-Christians thinking that the church was in some way saying, which is not saying, you know, hey, look, if you're not a baptized Catholic, you're not going to have it. Well, first of all, the church doesn't make, the church ne- nowhere makes any declarations about who is saved and who is not saved. We'll have to come back around and look at that key paragraph. And I want to also uh, give you a little homework assignment. And that is, if you have a chance before next week, one of the things that you can do to help prepare for it would be to read the following, just a couple paragraphs in the, in the catechism. It's 846 through 848. So it's basically 846, 847, 
and let me bring it up here on the, on the screen. Those are paragraph numbers. Yeah, those are the paragraph numbers, not page numbers. 846 to 848, uh, and just in three paragraphs. And it begins by asking the question, how are we to understand this affirmation? How are we to understand this affirmation that you just described? And we're going to go into that next week. And my goal is to help us, number one, understand what the church does not say so that we can understand what she does says. Part of what we need to do is, is clarify what the church is not saying so we can better understand what she is saying. And then the third thing we want to do, once we understand those two things, is be able to have some language to articulate this to others. When we meet that brother-in-law who says, oh, you know, at Thanksgiving, oh, I guess I'm not good enough to be saved since I'm a, you know, a Methodist or non-denominational and you're, you're Catholic. And we do have those questions from time to time that, 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 that come up. And so we'll do that in, in earnest next week. It's a great question, Therese. Thank you all for joining us tonight. It's a blessing to have been with you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.